Yo, next round is about to start. You ready? Yeah, yeah, just shopping for a car in Carvana. For real? Yeah, Carvana makes it super convenient to shop whenever, wherever. For real? That's a ton of car options. Yep, and these are all within my price range. For really real? You can afford that? Yeah, with Carvana. And boom, just like that, I'm getting it delivered in a couple days. For really, really real? You just bought a car. For real, and you just lost. My turn. Visit Carvana.com to shop for thousands of vehicles under $20,000. Thanks for listening to the Dr. Drew Podcast on Podcast One. Hey, welcome to Dark Drew Podcast. Uh, blah, blah, blah. Remember to check out the pods that are there at the website and the YouTube and the Facebook page and all that stuff. And then the, the swinging sounds and everything. We appreciate you. Uh, sign up at drdrew.com slash contact and send in your email. I will try to address the emails if you send them on the This Life podcast, which is uh, you can get at drdrew.com as well. So I got an email from Ryan Holiday. And whenever I get an email, email from Ryan Holiday, what happens, Gary? What do we do? Uh, I started scheduling it and we sent ju- you an email and said, we, anyone Ryan Holiday ever suggests, I don't even Google them. We, uh, <laughs> I just ex- schedule? It's exactly right. It's yeah. exactly what happened. So, Jessica Leahy, thank you for being here. You're so welcome. Uh, we, you got to get right onto this yes, thing, unfortunately. Sir. It's right. a crazy directional okay, right, right, right up to your mouth. There you go. Um, the gift of failure, how the, how the best parents learn to let go so their children can succeed. Yes, sir. I mean, Corolla and I talk. You know, pay attention, Jessica Gary, because Adam will want to talk to her too. I'm sure. Well, I know for a fact that you and Bob have talked about this stuff in the past. um, About right, exactly about. um, So I work in a drug and alcohol rehab uh, for kids, and uh, I've heard you guys talk a lot about the parenting you see, especially when the parents come for family day, that kind of stuff. And uh, that was. That was the reason I originally stuck a book in the mail to you. Is that you know the a lot of what you talked about really um, echoed some of the stuff that was in this book. And particularly, let's talk about what the sum of that is. Yeah. Which how should we? So it's hard to talk about so people don't get defensive and can understand what we're talking about. It, it's essentially, I think what you, what you were probably picking up on is the, the topic of enmeshment and, mm-hmm. and the, exactly and, and the lack of parents these days and. You know, I'm a parent, so I'm guilty too. Cannot have difficulty separating emotionally from their kids. It's not just that. I think uh, a lot of parents see their kid as a way to have a do-over. Yeah. Um, had, and I was talking at a local middle school about this just the other day. And, of course, parents love me. Um, there are just a few that are a little upset with me by the end of my talk. Right. Um, but Does that ever happen every time? Uh, yeah. Yeah, I, it drives me crazy because I, I don't I don't get it as much anymore. I must have softened my blows, well, but it was I, always like, "He's sick! How dare you make him?" You know, I literally like <laughs> screaming at me, like, yeah. "Why should I be changing anything?" Okay. Well, All here's right. the deal. So the the gift of failure is about the fact that I've been a teacher for 20 years. Um, that my students were increasingly less and less invested in learning for the sake of learning, more obsessed with the points and the grades and the scores. So there's that whole, you know. Um, Dan Pink, you know, extrinsic motivators suck as a way to motivate kids to do things. Um, And so there's that. But then there was this whole uh, side of it that was about directive parenting, that when we're really highly directive of kids, when we tell them exactly what steps to do and where to do it and how to do it, that we um, raise kids who just can't be frustrated and, and they're uncomfortable with their own feelings of frustration. And those kids, so there's that is a problem from a behavioral perspective, but those kids are less 
teachable in school. They learn less than their peers who can be frustrated. So that discomfort with frustration is not just annoying. It's also a terrible hurdle to learning. So, you know, this is in in the drug and alcohol treatment, we were always (laughs) – even though we were fought by the insurance companies and the departmental health at the time and, other, and uh, you know, pain, JCO and their pain management scales and all that nonsense of the day, uh, we were always interested in delivering optimal frustration to our parents, <laughs> patients because, indeed, they don't tolerate any frustration. Uh, and frustration management is like a key thing in being able to regulate. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so, so, you know, things like attention, attentional mechanisms mm-hmm. and frustration tolerance mm-hmm. – and disappointment or, you know, ordinary misery is the thing you've heard us talk probably about, mm-hmm. me and Bob, too. Yep. These are all things that kids aren't getting anymore because the parents are standing in the way of it. Well, and part of I, – I can tell when it's happening at home because those are the kids that, you know, I'll hand something out or I'll start to explain something and the hands will shoot right up in the air like, I don't get it, I don't get it, I don't get it, help me, help me. And and you know what's weird about that? What? Is that when, when – um, I'm remembering when my kids were starting to go through grade school and I was starting to see that. Mm-hmm. This is now – Twenty, all nearly twenty years ago, um, I thought, "Oh, good, they see adults as an asset. They're going to adults <laughs> for help." I really did, yeah, yeah. And, and I thought, "This is going. This is why this generation is going to be mm-hmm. more connected and more able to right. solve problems." But no, there's a there's a dark underbelly to that. Well, and the pro- So, what I was teaching some of those, talking to some of those parents about, primarily, my my heart lies in middle school. I am a middle school teacher. I love middle school. Middle school is this place can, where. Can, can I ask something that I've always wondered? What? Why? Okay, <laughs> because so here's here's why. Oh. As you well know, frontal lobe so not developed, yeah. and we throw so much more at them than they can ever handle. Yeah. And so my job is to walk around and Be watch a frontal kids. Lobe. Well, not that. <laughs> watch kids screw up all day long oh. and just sort of pick my battles and go around and say something like, you know, okay, sweetie, so um, you haven't brought anything to school for the past five days. So what's your plan for day six? Let's, let's talk about a way to come up with a plan for day six. And increasingly what was happening was rather than having this really valuable learning moment where maybe we were going to break through and some connection was going to happen for that kid, then the parent would run through the door with the homework and say, here, sweetie, I love you so much. Here's your homework. And that learning opportunity is lost. And I don't know when I'm going to get it back. And increasingly it wasn't coming back. Um, But that intolerance for frustration there's this wonderful research by this woman, Wendy Grolnick. Uh, her research is all about the re- what happens when we're overly directive of our children as opposed to autonomy-supportive. Autonomy-supportive kids are much more likely to be able to complete tasks that are frustrating to them in the absence of their parents. It's funny. Adam Kroll and I were just talking about this today is how we, we were given autonomy, period. <laughs> it wasn't supported <laughs> right, nor, right. nor otherwise. And so I think some of that sort of abandoning autonomy – I don't know what we'll call it, pathological autonomy, <laughs> is, is where this is coming from. You know, we, we, we don't know how to moderate the intervention. Well, I think, I think we had this pendulum swing. Yeah. I mean, we had the latchkey kids yeah. of the, you know, the late 60s, early 70s, and then we just wanted to give our kids more than that. And so now we're all on top of them. And, right. uh, you know, we're our, now our pendulum has swung way over in the other direction. And so what's really interesting is people – tend to say to me, oh, okay, well, this sounds like abandonment, like you're abandoning the kids. And I said, no. No, abandonment is what happened to you. The, the <laughs> term is autonomy supportive, yeah. when you're supporting a kid's autonomy. So the, the 
kids of autonomy supportive parents were much more likely to be able to get frustrated by a task but then take a breath think about another way to come at it and persist and the autonomy support the kids of the autonomy supportive parents are much more likely to complete tasks that are frustrating for them and, and so autonomy supportive is not obviously not uh, what obviating the consequences, not interfering with the consequences, right. and also not rescuing from whatever, right? You know, in that interventional. Mm-hmm. But the supportive part, what does that look like? So the supportive part, really, um, I use the example of you know trying to get out the door with little kids, and you turn around and you realize that the kids don't have their backpacks or anything. You could say, "You've forgotten your backpack. Go get your backpack. Did you get your lunch? Get your lunch." Or you could say. Let's stop for a second. Let's think about – I like to stop here for a second and think about what I need before I leave the house. And the kids go, oh, no, I've got everything. And you say, no, no, go through a little list in your head. Or if you're having trouble getting out of the house in the morning, every morning, and the kids are screaming and you're upset, you can, in a quiet moment that's not that emergency moment, say, you know – Getting out of the house in the morning really seems like it's hard for everyone. What are some things we could come up with maybe that would make things easier? Maybe – and then the – you know, in my house, it means that kids come up with like checklists. They stick next to the door. Do I have all my stuff? That kind of thing. Um, it's not solving their problems for them. It's being supportive of their ability to come up for solutions by themselves. Now, to the extent that I failed as a parent, as we all do, I, I always look towards – and I, Adam and I can argue about this too a bit – to education as sort of some <laughs> of the solution, not not the educators, because I right. look at the, I look at them as sort of the my team, mm-hmm. you know, my assets. But but education can frustrate, and and you know, you know what I mean if it's done well. So I kind of look to that. Well, increasing – well, that's what's happening. That's why SEL programs, social-emotional learning programs, are becoming all the rage because as we find out from – there was a recent study where kindergarten teachers were talking about the fact that um, social skills are much more important than academic skills, especially early on. And But what's happening is that a bunch of – a lot of kids aren't getting that ability to exercise their patience, their fortitude, whatever you want to call it. I do want to point out one thing um, when you say, you know, as we all screw up, that kind of thing. The joke of this book is that I was on this very – as an educator, you know, I was on this very high horse looking out at all these parents thinking, you're screwing this up for me. You're making your kids less teachable. Um, Right at the moment I was sort of at peak pissed off, I went home and I found out that my own nine-year-old child didn't know how to tie his own shoes. Mm. And I had done that. I mean that's called learned helplessness every single time. It had come to be time to tie shoes, which is P.S. frustrating. It's a difficult task. I'm like, oh, I'll just do it. My, I'll just do it for you. Yeah, yeah, it's faster. And that's how we build learned helplessness. Yeah. And so, you know, all of a sudden, I'm like, damn, I can't be mad at the parents of my students who are helpless because I'm doing the same thing to my children. So it became really urgent for me to figure out how to turn that around. What is there's a lot in this book, right? Not, Gosh, I hope so. Otherwise, it's I just mean, a bunch of blank pages. Well, no, there's a ton here. And I'm, is it how is it structured? So it's structured. Um, the whole front part of the book is the research about um, sort of how we got here. Number one, which um, is which is we're having kids later. We're having kids after more education. We're having kids after uh, more time in the workforce. We're having fewer kids. We as adults have become incredibly dependent on um, report cards, short term job evaluations. Yeah. So when our kids are little, we take them to the pediatrician and we get those beautiful. Beautiful little growth charts. Mm-hmm. And then you can think, oh, yay, look, he's at, you know, his head is big, but his body is they're just the right size. I'm doing so great. And like the pediatrician's the only place where you're getting that like, yay, I'm doing great. And then at a certain point, we start looking to our children to be um, our report card. Hmm. And if, 
you know, if our kid is on the traveling soccer league, if our kid is in all honors, then somehow we must be good parents. But that I, I think we, and at least the last twenty years or so, maybe it's, I think it's better in the last mm, five or ten. Um, it's not just we're good parents; we're like good. I don't know persons. Yeah, you know, it's like the personhood is enhanced by the child. Yeah. The child's really an extension of the self. Good and then self, you, I and guess then you be. talk about enmeshment. I mean, not just emotional enmeshment, yeah. but um, that sort of their achievement is their somehow my achievement, yeah. which is so unfair to do to children. Not only is it a ton of pressure, but then you're taking away their accomplishments and yes. somehow co-opting them yes. as mine. Like yes. I'm responsible for that because I'm your parent and I did such a yes, good job. Yes, co-op, we're co-opting them and, and then we, because we can't uh, tolerate them being frustrated or in pain, it's actually our pain that's being mobilized right. that we have to protect the child from. Well, when Which comes back to the point that to a degree, we're doing this because we love them so much, right? Yeah, it's hard yeah. to see our kids. As a teacher, it's hard for me to not just hand my students the right answer, especially the students I teach now who, you know, drug and alcohol addicts. I mean, they're, we're, they're in an inpatient rehab setting. I'm their English and writing teacher. And I don't like to see them frustrated either, especially when they're, you know, feeling like crap because they've just, you know, detoxed or whatever. Um, I would love to just hand them the answers. It would be so much easier for me. But what makes me feel good either as a parent or as a teacher is not necessarily what is going to serve the kids. Well, and to, to your point, this is what's happening with drug and alcohol treatment as right. well, which is uh, as opposed to doing the hard work of assembling a team and sitting and mm-hmm. frustrating and holding – linking right. arms and right. staying with that patient while they struggle with their disease – we just give them some Suboxone and go, go see you in a week. Well, the also, I mean, on top of that with kids, uh, you know, adults can change everything about their lives. They can get new friends. They can, you know, do a geographic, They can, whatever. But kids, we send them right back to their same school, their same home situation. You know, they're parenting the parent because the parent is an addict too. Mm-hmm. Um, that's or I don't understand how – kids are supposed to be able to succeed. And then they come back because they relapsed and um, and of course they of course they relapsed. We nothing set it changed. Up. We nothing. Set it up. Right, exactly. Yeah. How did you get in drug and alcohol treatment? Uh, because I'm a recovering alcoholic myself. Um, and I went to a rehab near us just as part of service for uh, my home group and uh, I sort of took – and I had been a full-time teacher and I had just gotten a book contract and realized I couldn't – and I was writing for the New York Times. I had a column there called the Parent Teacher Conference and I couldn't write full-time and teach full-time. I was going to shortchange one of them. Mm. So I uh, left teaching full-time and looked around when I was sitting there looking at the kids and I thought, wait a second. They were in the meeting with if you? they're inpatient, they got to do school. School and yeah. it turns out correct. There is an educational uh, program there and run by the. Um, it's in Vermont. It's run by the state of Vermont, overseen by the state of Vermont. So, which program? Which do you mind if I ask which program you're in? Uh, so it's a very small rehab in uh, in in Vermont called Valley Vista. It's mm. on the uh, eastern side, of, nice. and we have a, a men's wing and a women's wing and an adolescent wing. And you're at the adolescent program, and I'm in the adolescent program. How, how many patients? Uh, we max out. Our, I think bed wise, I think we'd probably we max out at. 10 or 12, That's but good. we usually have, you know, sort of our, our usual patient population is something like uh, six boys and three girls or two girls. And, and how do you see things going for addiction treatment? You know, I, especially for children, um, 
I, I've gotten to, as part of my, I travel a lot for, I do a lot of speaking at schools. I get to go to schools and talk to the kids and then do professional development for the teachers. And when I'm in and then talk to the parents in the evening and when I'm in towns, I like to try to find out what's happening in that town for rehab for kids. Mm-hmm. I was recently in Austin and I got to hear all about the university school there that is a high school or in a recovery high school. Mm. Uh, I get to talk to people who are looking at ways to make recovery a part of life as opposed to this place where you go for as long as your insurance will hold out. And, you know, the other problem is that in uh, many of our kids, uh, my students will end up in a situation where we don't know where they're going to go. They might end up living with their grandmother. Might They end, may end up in a group home. Um, they're just – there are so many issues to deal with. Uh, so many of them have unresolved issues with either learning disorders, um, ADHD, trauma – oh, my gosh, the trauma. And as their writing teacher, mm. I read it all. You Good know, boy. that's – they're telling me all about the molestation. They're telling me all about taking care of their siblings because their mother has passed out. All of that stuff – um, comes out in their writing, and it's it, yeah, there are I mean, some we're, we're tough lives. Finally, talking about adverse childhood experiences. Finally, yeah, I know. My well, God. and that's my next book. Tell me. So I uh, just two weeks ago sold it to my uh, my Harper Books, my uh, editor there, uh, exercised her option. Right now, it's called the Addiction Inoculation, and it is on raising about raising um, sort of more uh, addiction resistant kids. But really, it's all about. Uh, trauma-informed teaching. It's all about early intervention for aggression, early intervention for ACEs, um, adverse childhood experiences. It's about connection. It's about being that one adult for kids. It's about giving kids a feeling of self-efficacy. And, and so how do you define self-efficacy, by the way? Self-efficacy is um, – Because I, I keep finding different definitions yeah, for it out there. Yeah. So uh, self-efficacy to me just means uh, – and in the literature that um, I sort – when I talk about it with parents – that you feel like you have the power that if you were to make a decision, to do if you were to make a decision to change your environment, that it would actually affect change. You could do it. Yeah. Right. Um, and what ends up happening with my students is that so little – they either have so little autonomy um, or they have so little control over the, the right. violence around them or whatever's going right. on that – they would love to make change and they try to say things. They try to get help. They try to talk to people about stuff and nothing changes. So it's really closely related to learned helplessness. Um, but it really has to do with that feeling that if I make a decision, if I make a positive decision, that um, I can change things. Right. And, you know, when you're told over and over again uh, that – or when you're sh- when you're shown over and over again that that is not the case, I don't – There's, of course they lose their feelings of self-efficacy. See, I think, I think uh, 12 uh, mutual aid societies have a real real way of helping self-efficacy. I'm, I, I, I'm just, I, I've just noticed that for almost every condition I can think of. Elaborate, please. In that I, – I've, tr- I've been thinking about it lately that, that – um, Something about the support, the identification with a positive environment, mm-hmm. the recovery that you see in other people, mm-hmm. the whatever step or interpersonal kind of uh, regulation yeah. that's established. It just seems to result in more self-efficacy. I, I, what's I, been really interesting to me is how often the students feel like there's just no possibility they could write something that's any good or they could um, – that anyone will care. Someone, I, I, this is so great. Recently, I uh, went to grab the – get all the assignments from the kids and this one kid had uh, handed me two things. And I said, oh, you wrote two things? And he said, no, I wrote one, but the other one is for you. And I said, uh, you wrote something for me? He said, yeah, I wrote you a rap. He said, no one's ever cared about my raps before, so I wrote one for you. Yeah. And you know, uh, other students of mine talk about the fact that one kid was telling me that uh, 
he had been kicked out of his high school and he was going to be able to possibly go back if he chose. They were going to see. And he hadn't decided yet whether or not he was going to. And I asked him if there was anyone at the school he'd had a positive experience with. And at first I asked it as, is there a teacher you've had a positive experience with? And he said, no. And then I said, well, is there anyone at school? And he said, yeah, this one guy. The guy that sits in the rubber room, like where they send the kids when the kids get kicked out of class, he said, he's the only guy who will care if I don't go back and graduate. And there are a lot of kids that don't have that one person. And the power of that one person is incredible. It is incredible. Um, this, is that a what lot, the new book is about? Yeah, there's definitely a part of this. There's also a part of, um, you know, as a recovering alcoholic myself, as a person who is um, addiction all through my family, and I have two boys. I have a 19-year-old boy and I have a 14-year-old boy. And the only way I am going to have any hope with them of keeping them as addiction resistant as possible is to talk constantly about the fact that they're they're way more likely to be um, susceptible to addiction to, than their friends. So mm-hmm. let's talk about what that will look like, what that would look like if maybe you're looking forward to that um, that binge that weekend a little too much or you're, or you're binging or you're looking – you just like it a little too much. Right. And so we talk about it all the time. And the problem is is that – a lot of parents want to talk to their children about, um, you know, their addiction issues or their tendency for addiction without having it talking about their own issues with oh, food yeah. or with yeah, yeah. whatever. And then the numbers on things like parents seem to be aware that opiates coming out of the medicine cabinet are a gateway to things like heroin, but only 15 percent. Of parents are talking to their children or about clearing what, their medicine cabinets. <laughs> well, yeah, let, that's yeah. a whole other topic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Hey everybody, time to remind you about our friends at Blinds Galore. If you haven't already heard, Blinds Galore's big Memorial Day starts. The sale starts this week. Everything is up to 50% off. One of their biggest sales of the year and the best time to buy blinds. Hurry because the sale ends Wednesday. It ends on Wednesday, May 30th. And you know we love these guys. Everything is 100%. They don't bother with the stress of you dragging out the old big box prepackaged shades. They are a family-owned and run organization, and they are about service. They are about perfection. They are about getting the right design, getting precisely what you want and need for your house. We've got them. Corolla's got them. If you need more privacy, somewhere to sleep, you need the, just the sun out of your eyes, Blinds Galore has exactly what you're looking for. Let BlindsGalore.com get you the custom blinds and shades you've always wanted in your home. Don't forget to check them out during the big Memorial Day sale when you can get up to 50% off everything until May 30th. That is BlindsGalore.com and let them know I sent you. Video conferencing has changed the way we do business and this is the best way to use video conferencing. It is Zoom, Zoom. These guys have been using them forever. They are so great. In 2018, the clear winner is Zoom. You will abandon all the other systems. I guarantee it if you start to use Zoom. It delivers flawless video, pin drop clear audio, instant sharing across any device, desktop, laptop, tablet, mobile, whatever it is, it's HD video and it's simply striking. You will, I believe me, I, I'm, I kid you not, try Zoom. You can share anything with anyone from any device. 
also Word file spreadsheets, presentation decks, YouTube videos, a photo from your phone, whatever it is, Zoom is everything you've always wanted in video communication. It's got amazing features you've never even thought of, but you'll wonder how you lived without them. You can even set up a green screen behind you or get set up some exotic location around the world, make it look that way anyway. The only limit is your imagination. And now, if you're to use Zoom, you know what I'm talking about. And if you don't, find out. Visit zoom.us, Z-O-O-M.us, to set up your free account today. It is free. That is ridiculous. Meet happy with Zoom video communications. Set up your free account today at zoom.us. Uh, I want to go back to the, your your new book a bit, sure. if you don't mind. So, what are the basic interventions you're sort of going after there? I am so at the beginning of this. Literally, just sold the book two weeks ago. Yeah, I'm deep in the research phase. But of- you're talking about things that lay people can do. Things that parents, the and parents I'm also do. going to be talking about schools. What um, you yeah. know, what actually works according to the evidence. And I'm not there yet. I'm not in a. The nice thing about um, this research flail for me is yeah. uh, as um, that's what um, Mary Roach calls it. Her research flail is I go into this and I I try to remain as open as possible, and I will consider everything. And then um, you know whether it's looking at. You know, if I've always thought of addiction as under the disease model, am I willing to look at it as under the choice model or under the um, developmental model? Am I willing to sort of go to all those places? And really, and luckily, I'm married to a statistician and a physician. So my physician, statistician, husband um, can help me, you know, look really make sure that the data is, yeah. is great. Because so, in mental health, there's just so much oh, I know. Especially in addiction. Well, and there's a lot of bad uh, stuff. You know, the, the study will come out showing that, uh, you know, here's the result. And there were 37, 37 kids were surveyed. Oh, that's and, a you big know. study. <laughs> so here, here's, the, here's the basic flaws in, in addiction research. Uh, the ends are tiny. Mm-hmm. The durations are ridiculously short. Yeah. Like six months is a long yep. study. And that means nothing in an right. addictive pathology. They don't do observed urine screens. Mm-hmm. Uh, they only test for what they're interested in. It's if they're doing buckle swabs or something. They mm-hmm. don't test for other drugs. They don't take into account. They literally just sort of cut out loss to follow up. Yeah, which is yeah. which is relapse. Those, yeah. That's the ones that are using, right. and they should be uh, they should be uh, statistically accounted for accordingly. Mm-hmm. Uh, they have just so much flaw in it. Oh, and they're and they. Always believe what the patients are reporting mm-hmm. in the data, mm-hmm. whether it's a questionnaire right. or uh, some sort of you know form that the physician or the researcher fills out. They they believe the do- the addict. Here's it's a, absolutely insane. Here's the cool thing about questionnaires, though. So one of the one of the physicians I'm working with um, for this, um, do you know about the Siebert? The um, it's basically as kids come in to their pediatrician yeah. over a long period of time, and obviously this only works for kids who aren't you know highly mobile and moving from blah blah blah, um, but. It's all about surveying the kids in a way that's very private. They have a little tablet and they answer their own questions over a long period of time. And um, the relation – again, back to the relationships, you know, not a surprise. Uh, You can develop relationships with your patients where you can uh, sort of see where – trends are going. And what's really fascinating with the Siebert sort of uh, studies, uh, the surveying that's being done across the country, it looks like it really is effective in causing interventions to happen with your pediatrician. So, you know, keeping an eye on kids. Well, um, that makes sense. Yeah. That's, a, that's a different sort of a phenomenon. That's right. A I'm talking about, right. That's, that's a screening. screening. Yeah. It's all screening. Screening does tend to work mm-hmm. uh, because it, it's inadvertently picked up. Mm-hmm. The patient can lie and still get picked up. <laughs> um, but if you're studying 
consequence, right. outcome. Yep. Forget it, everybody. Yep. Just look for the objective parameters, well, and that's that. But that's but it's no fun to write about stuff that has a cut, clean and cut and clear answer. You know, it's it's really no, fun no for, for me. you. Yeah. But I'm thinking yeah, of the exactly. research and how yeah. crappy it is, and the stuff I have to fight out there. Yeah, exactly. And, and I've had to fight for twenty years. The opiate thing I've been fighting for twenty years, mm-hmm. and I was told I was a dinosaur. I was cruel. All these things I was vilified yeah. back in the late '90s, particularly. For, for, God forbid, trying to make patients sober. Yeah. Uh, how dare I? What's been interesting lately is, uh, you know, the kids as part of their rehab do um, the sort of drug timeline and they yeah. talk about, you know. And for the most part, when people ask me, you know, what's the, what's the drug of choice? What's happening? And, and Well, and I'm in New Hampshire and Vermont. We've got a major opiate issue. Mm-hmm. I write about that. But at the same time, for the kids, it really looks like it's sort of whatever they can get their hands on that messes them up. And, you know, like in on their addiction timeline, uh, they'll, some of them will have just a big box that says, miscellaneous pills, <laughs> you know, like they're whatever it is they can get their hands on that'll screw them up. And, and that's um, working through the reasoning for that, especially with a kid that's just arrested at a certain level of development because they started taking drugs or drinking at such a young age. It's, it's so hard to untangle what was the trauma, what, was the, what were the aces, what are the, um, you know, is this a result of the ACEs or is this causing – it's just – it's a do, big mess Do you mess differentiate ACE and trauma? I mean obviously certain traumas are adverse childhood experiences. But I sort of think of them all as bigger little traumas. You know, the reason I say trauma separately is because uh, in education right now there is a push for trauma-informed teaching. And so in my education head, I'm talking about like there's the ACEs over here and that's fantastic. And I'm so glad, you know – We're talking about them. Yeah, we've got <laughs> like Nadine Brick Harris and yeah. all kinds of wonderful books and people talking about it now. For me, the reason I keep trauma separate is simply because it's an emerging – interest in education to... And, and what is trauma-informed teaching? Trauma-informed teaching is the underst- is just understanding that when kids are dealing with violence, when kids are dealing with um, homelessness, whatever that thing might be, um, the way learning works in our brain is the fastest way to interrupt learning in our brain is to in- introduce stress. Mm-hmm. So when a kid is acting out, when a kid is not learning, just understanding that that their inability to learn might not be because they're zoning out or not paying attention or whatever. It could just be that they're experiencing a trauma that's interrupting their ability to learn. And and understanding what pushback from a kid means. Um, the kids at rehab try to piss me off just so I will say, see, you are a terrible kid and, uh, and, the, and get out of my classroom. And then they can turn around and say, see, another adult that let me down. So I have to be that adult that does not let them down ever. And trauma-informed teaching helps teachers understand that the reason you can't be that one to let them down is because they are dealing with additional stuff that makes them more difficult to manage in a classroom setting. It, it makes me uh, think also on something that I believe, which is uh, a, a significant percentage of the ADHD we see in the classroom is probably trauma. And that's a little talked about phenomena, which is that kids that are traumatized have ADHD symptoms or ADD symptoms. And we sort of treat them all the same. <laughs> you know, the, a- the-, the ADD, ADHD thing is just such 
a morass. It's a morass. It's, it is. It yeah, really I agree is. with you. But I wonder if you have something something to say about it. <laughs> I have can lots help clarify to clarify it a little bit. The problem is, is that I'm still in the I'm still in that place where I'm trying to I am still trying to evaluate what my conclusions are going to be. And you know, I've got Gabor Mate over here talking about you know his experience dealing with kids with ADHD and the fact that they're self medicating. You know, and then over with here, pie. right? And then I've got kids over here that um, are overly, uh, you know, especially when I teach in like a hoity-toity private school, which I've done a lot of with parents that are too eager to treat for the fact that what we need to be doing is getting kids out for more recess and moving Mm -hmm, more, mm -hmm. um, or at least standing up in class and waking their brains up from time to time. Um, So, you know, we're we're over-medicating kids because we want to make it easier for them to sit all day, which is not a good thing to be doing in the first place. So there's, I'm trying to find in between and, those and two I'm, places. And I've intentionally brought in this trauma stuff because mm-hmm. that's just a little discussed mm-hmm. overlay in there that, that that's another population that should be treated for the trauma, right. not just the ADHD. There's some really cool um, uh, organizations doing that. There's one in uh, in Boston that I love called Wit- the Witness to Violence Project. And uh, it was, uh, I, I'm an Albert Schweitzer Fellow and the Albert Schweitzer Fellowship had funded this program for a while in Boston. And essentially what they do is identify uh, kids who have been um, witnessed violence in their neighborhood or in their home and then got them the um, connectedness to an adult that they need in their community and also helped them get um, get help for the trauma, um, the PTSD. It's, it's overwhelming when you start to dig into it, right, uh, these issues and, and yeah. the numbers of kids that need help and the duration of the help they need and the manpower needed to – to make a difference, especially with kids, because the stakes are the stakes are so high. And the other issue, you know, when you see a kid come into rehab and they strip them of all their drugs, uh, and all of a sudden the kids don't have the things that they have been using to self medicate, and then oh my gosh, there's all the emotional trauma I've never ever dealt with before. Yeah. Um, you know, unless you've got someone there that's really good and intensively helping them feel stuff. <laughs> Well, that's, that's really what hard. That's what you're supposed to do. I mean, that's what we're, we always fashioned our job <laughs> was to not not just not revivify things or intensify them, but to help them touch them mm-hmm. and tolerate them in you know doses that they can mm-hmm. they can in an interpersonal context again the relationship because it is the relationship that helps them regulate and mm-hmm. be able to tolerate. The one thing I've seen you do before that I really <clears throat> really love, and I think this probably was back in Celebrity Rehab or something, where you're sitting there talking to someone and they're disassociating. Associating and they're, they're and they're talking about the molestation or the whatever happened to them and you'll you'll point out you'll say you know I'm I'm noticing that you're yeah. not reacting in yeah, any way Is, not, isn't that painful yeah. for you do you feel anything <laughs> therapeutic wonder yeah, but it's a great yeah. tool well and yeah. with the kids what they'll do often is joke about it oh I love I love joking yeah. about it too yeah and especially <laughs> at that stage of treatment I mean, that's sort of my expertise is getting them into the game mm-hmm. into the frame into the game. Moving forward and, and believing that they can and knowing that they mm-hmm. can tolerate it and it's not going to overwhelm them or shatter mm-hmm. them and that they can tolerate being sober. But it's it, you know we've pointed out now multiple times today it's the it's interpersonal mm-hmm. where, where the stuff happens. That's the magic of all this. The nice thing being about being a writing teacher and any writing teacher will tell you this is we hear the crazy stuff. We hear the stuff that they're not ready to say out loud. Um, one interesting thing you may not even know, I don't know, You maybe you know this or not, when my students are writing, and I encourage them often to write in the first person just so that they'll have to deal with some of that stuff, what'll happen sometimes is when things get really difficult, they'll switch to the third person. Oh, interesting. Yeah. The dissociate And so it. I have to encourage them right. to switch back to the first person 
Because uh-huh. they'll dissociate even in their writing. Yeah. Um, but one of the nice things is as I teach, there are also counselors in the room. And so if, um, if a kid really ne- is starting to flip out over something, uh, I had a kid one time and I wrote about this actually in, um, creative nonfiction about a kid I was teaching. It's my, my daughter's studying that in graduate school. Really? At, it's Columbia. a fantastic magazine. It's a creative she's nonfiction cre- she's magazine. She's doing creative nonfiction writing. It's oh, her thing. It's, I love it so yeah. much. I love it. Uh, I was working with this one kid and I asked them to talk to me about, to write about the way he sees himself and the way other people see him because we were just going to talk about the difference between the two. And the kid was willing to talk about how – to write about how he saw himself, but he was not willing to write about how other people saw him. Mm. And we sat down and we talked to him. We were like, well – he just refused and shut down. And so we sat down and we talked to him and, of course, he didn't – he – finally started to talk a little bit about the fact that there's no reason to for him to talk about what other people expect of him because the, everyone expects that, like all the other men in his family, he will go to prison. What else is there to say about that? And then I said, well, did any of these other men in your family ever go to rehab? And he said, no. And I said, well, that could be how you're different. And then he just started to cry. And what was really interesting is that after that, um, a, about – 20 minutes later, I realized I saw him doing something and he had drawn a large heart on the desk and he wrote the word pain inside Mm -hmm. of it. And he could not articulate that in words, but essentially just the fact that he had opened up to someone, that's painful. The fact that there was the potential that someone would support him had the potential for pain because who knows, I could disappear any day and decide to, you know, Tell him he's a terrible person and that he's not – he's worthless. Um, but that's what these kids are dealing with. They're dealing with – you know, the, I, I, you can't make these things up. A big heart written in Sharpie with the word pain in the middle of it. And it's, that's, that's, that's it right there. there. Yeah. That's an image yeah. of what that is. Yeah. It's intense. Yeah. It's the best teaching job I've ever had. Really? I, you know, I, I've learned a lot of patience. I've also learned um, – I used to be able to get – a little miffed with my students and sort of say, you know, forget it. You're, I just go out in the hallway and just I can't I can't teach. The minute I do that, I verify to them that I that I'm going to leave them, and or that I'm going to push them away. And I've I've made that mistake. I've written about that mistake. I've become much more patient. I've for me, often a victory is um, that a kid leaves with a book. Um, I have a lot of kids who tell me I just I don't read. No, uh, I've I've I can't. I don't know that I've ever finished a whole book. And my superpower actually is matching kids with books. My superpower is uh, finding books that kids will want to read, even when they say they're not interested in anything. Um, luckily for me, the power for that comes from Twitter. Um, at, and this this was true a couple years ago, and I'm not. You should write a book about that. Well, get this, get this. As a profession, teachers are the largest users of Twitter. Oh, interesting. So when people say to me, why are you on Twitter? It's such a dark and terrible place. And I say, not when you follow 12,000 teachers. So if I need a book recommendation for a kid, I can get on there and I can tag like the Nerdy Book Club and um, the School Library Association and all that kind of school library journal. And I can say, look, I need a book for a 17-year-old who reads at a sixth grade level but loves basketball. And within 15 minutes, I will have – a whole list oh, of recommendations. Uh, that gives me hope for the future of Twitter it's, it's, as, as, a, I as a resource. You know. love Twitter. It's really been <laughs> – oh, um, and teachers on Twitter – I hate it. Teachers on Twitter, they're the best. And I think a lot of this comes because um, 
professional develop for development for educators, generally speaking, it sucks. So teachers are using Twitter as their um, their way to develop what they call PLNs, per, um, personal learning networks. Oh, interesting. So I have – and there are lots of Twitter chats about things like teaching English as a second language, teaching um, innovative teaching, you know, hashtag why I teach, hashtag whatever. There are all these Twitter chats about teaching and they're all productive, supportive um, relationships develop so that then when you go to like a teaching conference somewhere, you get to meet everyone in real life. Oh and God, that's very cool. So, you know, I, it's an amazing place for educators. Um, and so if you're a teacher out there at Jess Leahy, I would love to follow you back. Um, I follow tons and tons of teachers. L-A-H-E-Y, Jess Leahy. Jess Leahy, yeah. Now, there are a couple things I want to do before we wrap up. Well, I want to hear a little more about you because I always like doing this podcast sure if you're up for it. Absolutely. Um, and, I, and I want to sort of wrap up the parent thing a little more if we can. Well, obviously, we need to get them to buy the book because okay. that's where they can figure out yep. you know, what they can do. But what, what are the sort of – what kind of takeaways can we give people other than the sort of concepts we've been talking yeah. about? So generally when I get done talking to parents, they're like, okay, yeah, well, I, I – so the main point is extrinsic motivators don't work for kids. Dangle, uh, paying them for their grades, dangling grades, even grades in front of them. Um, sur- uh, surveillance. Do you know about school portals, the computer that you can log into to look at your kids' grades anytime you want? Well, my kids are 25 now, so thank okay. God I missed all that. Okay. So now what parents are doing is they're logging on to the school portal. But I'm sure I would have done that. And they are looking <laughs> sure. a bajillion times a day yeah. at their kids' grades. That's called surveillance. That's an extrinsic that's, motivator. That's called – that's stalking. <laughs> well, it, it's an extrinsic motivator. Okay. And what we know about extrinsic motivators is that they undermine motivation in kids. And they undermine creativity, interestingly enough. What about the parents being a role model and just doing – Oh, we're not even there yet. Hang okay. on. Okay. Um, so then – so we know extrinsic motivators suck for um, for motivation and, and learning and creativity. The other interesting thing, though, is if we want to promote intrinsic motivation, get kids interested in learning for the sake of learning, we have to give them, one, more autonomy, two, have to help them feel competent, not this empty confidence, yay, I have such uh, high self-esteem, blah, yeah, blah. Yeah. autonomy, competence, Connection. Hmm. So this whole next book is really about connection. Um, now, should parents be connecting or help encourage? Absolutely. The kids? But here's the thing: connection for teachers. When I do professional development at schools for teachers, I talk all about like, yes, there's the interpersonal connection, but it's really about um, relevance. It's about high expectations for kids. It's about teaching kids that um, this learning we're, we're doing right here is not, you know, an abstract. Um, Thing You could go out there in the world. If you learn this geometry, you can build bridges that won't fall down during earthquakes and save people's lives. That's relevance. Context, yeah. Right. Um, but for parents, it's two things. you got to love the kid you have, not the kid you wish you had. And you can't just love them based on their performance. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, there are ways to do that. And the ways to do that are – to think long-term rather than short-term. Parenting is a long-haul job. And if we're constantly just reacting in those emergencies and making ourselves, you know, this homework assignment has to be perfect. This soccer tournament, he needs to play for 33 minutes or he won't get into the blah, 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 blah. Um, If we could just think more long-term, yes, it would be easier if I jumped in on this homework assignment. But do I want my kid to be able to do this by himself? Um, taking all those learning opportunities so that in a, in six months, in a year, in five years, our kids are more competent than they are today. So thinking more long-term rather than short-term and thinking more about the process and less about the product. So thinking, talking to our kids less about the grades and more about, huh, interesting. So you got a low grade on that test. Well, what did you do to, to 
prepare for this test. You know, oh, you say your friend got an A and you got an F. Well, what did your friend do that you didn't do? What are you going to do next time? It's all about sort of what are, how are we going to be better for next time? And a lot of this comes, you know, from the Carol Dweck growth and fixed mindset stuff and helping kids understand that the more they stretch themselves and take the challenge problems in school and, and try things that are difficult for them, the smarter they become. That's the way our brains work. Um, so autonomy, competence, connection, those three things. All right, terms like MSRP, things you might be familiar with or maybe you don't know what they stand for. I don't know. I get confused when I go to a car dealership. Invoice, list price, dealer price, it's confusing anybody. But when you're looking for it, you want the real price, that means true price from true car. Now you can know exactly what you'll pay for the car you want, including fees and accessories before you even get to the dealership. True Car will show you the true price on cars like the one you want. Of course, it's all on the, you know, at True Car in the comfort of your own home. You see that scattergram. You see what other people paid for the car you want. And then when you lock it in, you're locking in an actual vehicle on a True Car certified dealer's lot. And you know, true price is a great price because True Car dealers show you what other people paid for the car, and the certified dealers know this, so they set out their true price competitively so they win your business. They want the business at their true car certified dealer. So when you're ready to win, so when you're ready to buy new or used, don't forget, used cars also, visit True Car to enjoy a more confident car buying experience. Some features not available in all states. All right, I'll give you a challenge, a gift that is affordable, practical, and Instagram-worthy. Well, I'm talking about Quip. I'm talking about Quip. That's right. You're supposed to you're supposed to brush your teeth for two minutes twice a day, but do you really do it for full two minutes? And with Quip, they have a timer on this new electric toothbrush that packs just the right amount of vibrations into an ultra-slim design, guiding pulses to simplify better brushing. And it also offers an optional subscription program delivering new brushes, new heads on dentist-recommended three-month schedule for just $5, including free shipping worldwide. And the Equip Electric Toothbrush is featured in just about every gift guide you can imagine. Quip starts at just $25, and right now when you go to getquip.com slash Drew, D-R-E-W, to get your first refill pack for free with a Quip electric toothbrush, that is right, your first refill pack for free at getquip, G-E-T-Q-U-I-P, getquip.com slash Drew. You're not going to regret this. The design is great. The mechanism is great. The timer is great. The price is great. Get Quip. Getquip.com slash Drew, D-R-E-W. All right, if you like this show, step into Heather Dubrow's world every Friday on Podcast One. Heather's talking to some fabulous guests like Queer Eyes, Karamo Brown, YouTube's Mamrie Hart, and Grace Helbig, and so many more. You don't want to miss a second of it. Check it out, Heather Dubrow's world at Podcast One and Apple Podcast. Also, don't forget to rate and review. Um, I, I really felt like you, you, know, you should be talking to the kids about what's interesting in the work they're doing, too. I mean, take interest. Oh, absolutely. I mean, really just talk about what they're doing. And share. But if you're reading and talking about what you're reading and you know okay. what I mean? So the, role, the, so the role modeling stuff. So I, recently I was – I can't remember where I was. I'm all over the place. This parent said to me, look, my kids aren't reading for fun anymore. And so she wanted – she said, can you make me a list of really, really challenging books that my kid will want to read? And I said, well, let's – Is that going to make them for fun? <laughs> I, don't know, I don't know. And then I said, well, let's back up for a second. You say your kids don't read for fun. Do they see you read for fun? And she had to admit, no, no, well, no, I'm really busy. Mm. And when I say read for fun, I mean they have to see you reading actual paper books because when you've got tablets, they can't you, they can't see what you're doing there. Um, and then I said, and then I said, uh, 
And speaking of, you know, of this magic list of difficult books, what do your kids read when they read for fun? And she said, oh, they read those Diary of a Wimpy Kid books. But those are stupid, so I threw them away. Oh, my. Yeah. Oh, well. Yeah. Uh, anyway, so that modeling thing is so important. And with parents, the other thing is that when – not just about things like reading, but I say – a lot of the questions I get are things like, my kid is just afraid to try anything that she's not sure she's going to be good at right away. Or she's just really scared of looking dumb or looking stupid or making a mistake. And I say, well – do you talk about the mistakes you make in front of your children and the positive adaptive response to failure that you have? Do you sit there at the dining room table and talk about like, you know, I I really I have this goal and it's going to be really tough, but here are my here's my plan for like how I might achieve that thing. They need to see us being emotionally and intellectually brave. We can't possibly expect them to do that if we're not modeling that for them. I'm just thinking about the long term too. I I you know, did a lot of encouragement of reading and things, but I didn't f- push it. Mm-hmm. And um, they were in a rigorous academic thing they did. and and But now in their uh, young adult life, now they're starting to read spontaneously. Mm-hmm. And well, that was really what I was looking for. Yeah. I wasn't in that. Because I, I didn't, they didn't have to read right. biographies when they were in eighth grade. I just wanted them to kind of Yes. Well, and that all comes down to, you know, there is a period of time when kids, some kids taper off and stop reading as much for yeah. fun. And that's when the social, you know, hormones kick sure. in and social life. But actually, you say I didn't force it. Forcing it is one of the worst things you can do. You get your but, parents but, but stink I mean, all I over didn't it. Even, but I didn't even – right. But I didn't even – I don't remember pushing it even. I just remember doing it around them yeah. and stuff and talking about it a lot. Yeah. And hoping that one day they'd pick it up. But it's a a long term before they do. You have to wait 90 years. The other thing that seems to work pretty well, especially with teenagers, and this requires that you know your kid. Know what your kid cares about. Because if you know what your kid cares about, you can get um, nonfiction books about the things they actually care about, whether that's for my kids, it would be running or um, just uh, stuff like that. And put those books around the house. Just leave them there. Just have them around. And uh, and there, in, that way you don't – because there's this one book that I really wanted both of my children to read. I was so excited for them to read it and that was A Wrinkle in Time when mm. they were little. And of course, that is the one book they will not read. Neither one of them have read it and they will not read it because it has my mom stink all over it. Yeah, I got it. Yeah. Where did you grow up? I grew up right outside of Boston. Whereabouts? A little town called Sherburn, uh, sort of right near Wellesley College essentially. A little idyllic sort of in the woods, town forest behind us, had horses, that kind of thing. Isn't Wellesley is Wellesley, right? It's in mm-hmm. Wellesley. Yeah. And so you're right near Wellesley. And uh, yep. I'm, I'm trying to – I've been there once. I'm sort to, of southwest. Natick, yeah. Wellesley, Framingham. I would say Framingham's near yeah. there. Mm-hmm. And there's another – what's that business school that's near there also? Um, Babson. 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 Yeah, Babson, Babson's yeah. right there. Mm-hmm. And so that's a very beautiful little mm-hmm. area. It and, was but, really lovely. But there was alcoholism in the home? Yeah, but that's their story to tell. No, but I mean yes. you were exposed. Yes. So whatever. Yes. Uh, I, you know, both – well, what's been interesting is in my husband's side of the family, it's, there's alcoholism, alcoholism there. And in my side of the family, there's lots of alcoholism there. So, you know, it was nice and primed. Well, but but usually the way it works is even though it's on both sides, one doesn't have it but is attracted to an alcoholic <laughs> and one has it. And it's usually kind of the, the, the mix. Yeah. Well, um, we started – my husband and I started talking about that early in our relationship. Yeah. But we acknowledge both of us, you know, we're sort of primed for it. So we got to keep an eye out. And I didn't actually really become an alcoholic um, seriously until I was in my 40s. So. You mentioned binging. Was that sort of your pattern? Uh, no, no. I was just a um, 
because I was an afternoon, you know, get a little ahead of the drinking curve and get a little bit in me before people got home kind of thing. Uh, I'm one of those very fortunate um, alcoholics that has a lot of not yets in my story. So you, you know, have I, a deep bottom or anything? I, no, no. I, um, it was uh, – speaking of the choice model, I, uh, I got – I real I knew for a while things were going down the crapper and uh, and that I was just about to start with the day drinking and stuff like that and um, my uh, my father came to me I just wrote a piece for the Washington Post actually about non alcoholic beer and I in that I tell the story of the fact that my father came to me one day and he said you're you're an alcoholic and it was right when I had sold my book and I knew this book I, yeah wow. I knew I couldn't write and drink at the same time mm. and. This was my dream was to be a writer. And if I didn't give it up now, I was going to mess it up. Were you still able to control it or did you have to do a full program? That day, No, that day I went to my first uh, AA meeting, meeting in the evening. I did the <laughs> – I went to my first meeting um, f- kind of far away from my house because I didn't want to see anyone I knew. And unfortunately, I fell in love with that meeting. And so now in order to go to my home meeting, I got to drive, you know, whatever. Yeah. But I travel a lot and what's fun about traveling a lot – is I got, get to go to meetings all over the place. It's, it's great, isn't it? It's really interesting yeah. to sort of see what it's like all over the place. And then I also, um, you know, belong to some, you know, secret little Facebook groups. Where, and also teaching. I mean, teaching is also a meeting for me. Teaching is, you know, being a role model. And um, for me, the high, my higher power has always been the people in in around me that are trying to stay sober too and that support me, that miss me when I'm not at the meeting or um, that ask if I haven't been around in a while, that kind of thing. That's that nice. check in on me on Facebook and say, how are you doing? Is that – they're in New Hampshire now or are they are- – I have – the main meeting I go to is in Vermont. Vermont. I'm Vermont. right on the New Hampshire-Vermont border. My husband teaches at Dartmouth. Ah. So we're right on the New Hampshire-Vermont border. He's a physician at Dartmouth uh, medical, medical School. I always thought the medical school was down in Boston or something. No, nope, no. It's up there. No. Uh, so Dartmouth College is in Hanover, yeah. New Hampshire, and yeah. the medical center is in Lebanon, New Hampshire, one town south. He's oh, an HFE doc there and a medical ethicist. Oh, fantastic. Mm-hmm. HFE. He does infectious disease, um, a lot of HIV, mostly HIV, and then has, just loves the um, the medical ethics stuff. And that's primarily when he writes. He writes um, uh, for the New York Times occasionally, and he writes mostly about medical ethics. Does he write in the New? Where does he write? I'll look for his stuff. Uh, he he writes about the in in op ed. He writes about things like um, he has one on safe injections in spots in hospitals and what happens to his patients who are trying to recover from a systemic infection when they run out of the hospital to go shoot up somewhere and then come back reinfected. Um, he has written about um, videotaping patients, the ethics of videotaping patients. They had a, a Munchausen by proxy situation, and and you know what does it mean when you're um, what are the issues when you're videotaping patients? Um, that kind of stuff. So yeah, really interesting. Tim Leahy, and you can, if you Google like New York Times and Tim Leahy, MD. I bet you I read New York Times pretty carefully. Is it in mm-hmm. the Sunday paper usually, or is he? Mm, I don't know. I think it's been in the Sunday. I, usually they're online things. I'm not. I don't. I don't know that he's no, ever been like in print. He's been online, and then he's also in the Well blog from time to time. What? Oh, the Well blog. Yes. The Well blog. Yes. Yeah. Well, uh, Jessica, I really appreciate you spending time with us. And, and how did you get to know Ryan? Uh, I got to know someone. I just – I think I followed him on Twitter. He followed me back. I sent him a book. 
He named it as one of his favorite books of the month in Th- his reading one? club, yes. And then at the end of 2017, he picked his 10 favorite books from 2017, and this was on that list. Fantastic. Yeah, and he's just been – he's just a kind human being, kind and generous human being. He's yeah. an extraordinary guy. And he has a donkey that can open doors. He does? He does. With his mouth or what is he, yeah, he doing? Yeah, appa- there was a picture on Instagram that I love. Apparently the donkey has figured out how to um, open the door. D- did you read the, read the New York Review on his book, Conspiracy? Well, first of all, I love that book. It's a great like, book, yeah. I love I have a podcast as well about writing and we talk about the books we're reading and I've been raving about that book. It's a great too. book. Yeah, it's fantastic. But the review was – I, I called him immediately. I was I like, know. I was like, this is this I is know. confusing. <laughs> does, I, does he like? I think he likes the book, but this is an ad hominem yeah. sort of conversation. He doesn't. And why is he taking you on as a person in a book review? It was you bizarre. Know, you know, I think I, because he's written his early stuff. Like, if you read, um, trust me, I'm lying. Yes. Okay, that book made me so uncomfortable. That's our love world now. I know. We live in. I know. I, I was, he predicted it. <laughs> I was out in my raspberry patch because that's the world I live. Raspberry patch and big garden. I'm out in my raspberry patch and I'm listening to this book, realizing I'm going to have to read this in short segments because um, I, I listen to a lot of audiobooks. I had a head yeah. injury a couple of years ago, and so I uh, I have to save my on the page time for my research books. So I, I listen. The concentration to it. wears down or something. Uh, or? I start. I get. A pain across oh, the, my and then I get a visual migraine. Oh, so, geez. so I listened to a lot of books, and yeah. I was listening to that book, which was great. But I was like, "Oh man, how much of this can I take?" Because it's just making me feel pretty oogie. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah. it's the word, and, and he said something on this podcast a couple a couple months ago. He, I w- we were talking about Trump for some reason, and he said, "You know, I think Trump." He goes because I, I the trust me, I'm lying thing was I, I like people that that can help me understand the world I'm mm-hmm. in, and then. Push it forward, and, mm-hmm. and you know, pre- actually, accurately predict how it's going to go. Mm-hmm. Go, um, and he said, you know, I think Trump is part of this this world we've created through the, the trust mm-hmm. me, I'm lying type of stuff. He goes, but eventually there was going to be some sort of resistant strain of bacteria to, yeah. to use your husband's models. <laughs> and he goes, I think that's what this is. This is a, restrict, a resistant bacteria that is just completely re- in, in a, unaffected by all these things that it's, we have we have been throwing like yeah. a big antibiotic at a bacterium. The other thing that's been interesting about all of this, um, all the Trump stuff, is from a journalist's perspective. Especially a journalist who writes about child welfare, juvenile justice. I have a law degree in juvenile justice, and so I'd love to write about that stuff. No one's listening. I mean, it, there's, it's, it's always been more difficult for me to get people to read articles about how we're failing foster kids in education or how, you know, what we need to do for foster kids to help them succeed. Um, those have always been articles that mean the most to me, but articles that get the fewest page views because, you know, it's depressing. Um, and then the way the, um, the way that the what's happening in the news cycles right now is that the news cycle keeps getting co-opted by these, oh, my gosh, have you heard, right. over and over yeah, but, and over but, again. But I would argue that, yes, those are oh, my gods. But for the journalist, I would ask them, please, stop it already. Yeah. Do the journalism. I, I want to read what's going on. I want to what's going on. Really report. I, yeah. I was in the White House uh, a couple months ago, and we had a very important conversation about what they were going to do for the opioid thing. Mm-hmm. They didn't report it. Yeah. yeah, they don't. They don't report. I know. How do I know what's going on in that? Then the White House, they won't report what's going actually going yeah. on. Yeah, I wrote a piece um, uh, called something something like it was for uh, Cognoscente at WBUR in Boston. It was about um, uh, 
we're not alone in being Trump's drug-infested den. He called our state, New Hampshire, a drug-infested <laughs> den. Uh, and so I was writing about that. And, you know, it's really hard. Like the fact that he called New Hampshire a drug-infested den, that, you know, made the news all over the place. But the article I wrote about sort of what we need to be doing in order for in order to um, up the chances that we're going to keep people safe and recover. Yeah, and my, my position is, right, I don't care what he said. <laughs> I want to hear you read your article. Well, I, and I, I wrote I, about like what they're doing in Maine that's working well. Why do well we care what he said? Why don't we care about the substance of what he was talking about, which I is what you're know. writing about? I don't know. And and I I fault the, the I, I I assiduously reviewed the New York Times, and I've been a little concerned lately. It's been weak. I, I'm always very very disturbed when when I'm done in 20 minutes on Sunday. Mm-hmm. It's like. This, this is not the paper I used to enjoy. Well, so and much. what I'm hearing from a lot of from a lot of people is that they're so frustrated by um, all of the oh my god, uh, you know, yeah. spl- that the hair on fire. Now, stuff. like I know people who have now, like for example, on Twitter, have muted Trump and you know all these words, and then you're not. Oh, it's people. It's pushing people away from reading the news because it's become so infuriating and so yeah, but the, but the, insufferable. I agree. But but the it's but the way they're reporting it with their hair catching on fire every day about something. Can you remember what it was two weeks ago? I can't even remember. Yeah, and so it's done. It's enhanced me zero. Mm-hmm. It's supposed to increase the the conversation. You know, Maybe it's a short it. attention span thing because what I'm really saying is, look, things aren't uh, things are still the same or not getting better or whatever with addiction and that's kind of depressing and old news but we have to keep talking about that what we're doing to fix things and um, the problem is is that I think and I'm hearing this from friends who work in Washington also because nothing can get done there's this bottleneck of crazy and this bottleneck of um, just people feeling like well first of all half the people that are supposed to be in the government aren't even working and it's just it's a frustrating time for journalists it, it's a frustrating time for I would argue it it should it should direct us all to the habit of democracy locally because that's where we actually can have an effect here's, it's how this was actually designed to be run that way here's Focus the thing locally one of my favorite education writers Holly Corby is writing a book on raising good citizens yeah oh my and god I we never talk about that anymore so excited to read this book Th- that was something that was just that that was what this country was sort of that's what education was supposed to be in this mm-hmm. country was right. to, to create a populace that can can deal with the mm-hmm. Vote can deal right. with the self-government, right? And it, they felt it. The founding fathers felt it required a really educated populace to do that. Mm-hmm. And I remember when I was in certainly grammar school, being a good citizen was a was a topic of conversation. Right? We would actually explicitly talk about it. That's been gone for a long time. Yeah. So maybe it will come back. I hope so. And be I, nice? You know, I think civility, that, citizenship. Uh, I'm I brother, am optimistic. Brotherhood will be fantastic. I'm optimistic. My kid that's in college is studying. Is probably going to. He thinks he's going to double major in history and government or history and economics. He's, but he loves the history. Yeah. So I'm like, keep reading the history because if you're at all interested in government, that's where you're going to find out about Great. what we've done wrong in the past yeah. and how not I, to repeat I it. I so agree with you. Well, listen, it's been a privilege. And of course, Gary, Ryan does not let us down as we knew he would not. And, <laughs> no. and Thank so, you, Ryan. And, and we, yeah, he doesn't. And uh, I appreciate the gift of failure, how the best parents learn to let go so their children can succeed. Ha- have I been towing the line reasonably well in your, I mean, if I said anything off the rail? No, of course okay. not. Okay. No. no, no, no. I mean, in terms of um, me and Bob talking about our no, shooting our mouths off. No, 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 no. I'm, I am absolutely. I'm. I'm absolutely um, able to call people out on their on their but, BS. Do and you have not. Uh, the reason I sent you books is I was so I was nodding and I'm like, oh my gosh, I wish they would read this because they're talking about right. the same stuff I'm talking Fantastic. about. I will get Bob. Okay, I'll, 
Can I have another copy for Vaughn, too? Fantastic. Of course. All right. Jessica Leahy, thank you so much. At Jess Leahy, L-A-H-E-Y is where you can follow her or JessicaLeahy.com, the website. Um, looking, is there anything else we want to the, sh- the Stinky and Dirty Show? <laughs> what is that? There's a show on Amazon Kids called The Stinky and Dirty Show, which helps kids be um, innovative and resilient. And I, the, it, the curriculum is based on the gift of failure. Fantastic. Thank you very much. You're very welcome. Right, we'll see you next time. All right. For calling times and topics, follow the show on Twitter at Dr. Drew Podcast. That's D-R-D-R-E-W Podcast. The music from today's episode can be found on the swinging sounds of the Dr. Drew Podcast, now available on iTunes. And while you're there, don't forget to rate the show. The Dr. Drew Podcast is a Corolla Digital production and is produced by Chris Loxamana and Gary Smith. For more information, go to drdrew.com. All conversation and information exchanged during the participation in the Dr. Drew Podcast is intended for educational and entertainment purposes. Only. Do not confuse this with treatment or medical advice or direction. Nothing on these podcasts supplement or supersede the relationship and direction of your medical caretakers. Although Dr. Drew is a licensed physician with specialty board certifications by the American Board of Internal Medicine and the American Board of Addiction Medicine, he is not functioning as a physician in this environment. The same applies to any professionals who may appear on the podcast or drdrew.com. Mm-hmm.